Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Deal Maker Show. So today we have a founder that is going to teach us a lot about crypto. I think that there's a lot about the space, you know, a lot of uh, hype, a lot of momentum going, and I think that we're going to be able to filter through some of the noise with the with the, the guests that we have today on the show. So I guess without further ado, Nathan McCauley, welcome to the show today. Thanks a lot for having me. Looking forward to it. So originally born in Indiana, how was uh, life growing up there? Uh, I, I I grew up in Indiana, kind of a uh, small town. Any anything from a uh, spent some time in a town of kind of twenty thousand people, all the way down to about one hundred and fifty. Um, and so it was a very small rural um, background. Uh, parents worked kind of a, at factories and kind of working class blue collar jobs. Uh, so moving to San Francisco and getting to be part of the startup scene was uh, a really uh, interesting change. Um, and I still look look back fondly on my on my upbringing. Um, really, really appreciate kind of the the work ethic that came from that. Uh, but now, uh, really enjoying being in the in the startup team scene here in San Francisco. And computer science, I understand that you came across this, you know, this love for for computers and software development while university. So, so tell us about this. Yeah, so uh, I had always been kind of interested in in computers. I think this is a, a very common story. Uh, so, decided just kind of by default to uh, study computer science in college. Uh, that's where I really kind of uh, it solidified that I wanted to really build a career uh, working with software, working with uh, building systems. Uh, just the amount of uh, uh, creative white space that you have within software development uh, was really exciting. So it was um, very good to kind of study that and then be able to transition that into a, a career. And there was not a lot of, uh, you know, obviously software development companies and tech companies there, you know, when when you were probably looking at entering the the labor market. So, but I understand that you started as a, as an intern and 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 you know. Fortunately, that company had an office as well in San Francisco, so that was the kind of like the bridge. That's right. That's right. I uh, I found a company based out of Indiana. Uh, actually, even before I got the internship, I looked at them and I noticed that they had a an office in San Francisco. And so the plan was uh, get an internship at this company, uh, and then do a very good job at that internship, and then hopefully after graduation they would move me out to San Francisco. Uh, and sometimes uh, a plan works, uh, and so worked as an intern there at a company called ArcSan Technologies, uh, and then after after graduating from university, 
uh, moved out to San Francisco and kind of started with them. Uh, that job ended up being a very interesting job. Uh, it was kind of a, a deeply technical role where we were focused on um, a kind of a, a subfield of software security called anti-reverse engineering. Uh, and so the whole, the whole goal of it is to take intellectual property uh, that might be in the hands of someone who wants to steal it and figure out ways to, ways to protect it. Interesting applications for it. It, it spanned anything from, say, uh, software protection for, say, military applications. If you have a, a set of, kind of a, a military device, be it a tank or a, uh, a jet, something like that, that might go, go down behind enemy lines. You don't want um, whoever comes into possession of that technology to be able to figure out how it works. Uh, we worked on those kinds of uh, use cases, uh, but it turns out that the solution to those kinds of use cases is the same kind of technology that is needed for anti-cheat in video games. And so I got to work on some uh, truly uh, blockbuster releases of, um, of video games uh, and got to help protect those um, protect those assets against uh, cheating, reverse engineering, those kinds of things. Uh, notably within that, one of the areas that I focused on was... Um, key protection uh so cryptographic key protection uh and so from the from the very beginning of my career um was was focused on protection of cryptographic material um which as we'll get to later ends up um, still being uh what i'm thinking about on a day-to-day basis so what do you understand as cryptographic material sure so the the way to think about it is cryptographic material are these secret bits of information that are used to uh protect data uh, those could be encryption keys for uh, encrypting other sensitive personal information. Uh, those could be uh, signing keys that are used for kind of internet infrastructure or within the, the crypto space, which we'll, we'll spend some time talking about. Um, they're actually used to, to control uh, crypto assets. Uh, and so if you're investing in Bitcoin, you're investing in Ethereum, any kind of uh, cryptographic asset um, or a crypto asset, at the end of the day, what you need to protect is the, the key material that is used to control that asset. And my current company, Anchorage, uh, that's kind of what we focus on as our bread and butter, uh, is protecting those keys so that institutional investors can um, safely participate in the digital asset class. And we'll talk about that in just a bit. But tell us about why did you make the move to Square? What happened? Sure. Yeah. So uh, it's a, it's an interesting story. So I was working uh, at ArcSan kind of uh, happily uh, happily plugging away there and really enjoying kind of the, the technical challenge that I was facing. Um, but I, I ended up meeting who would end up becoming my uh, boss at Square, uh, this individual named Sam. I met him uh, at a bar, actually. Um, so we were at a, a bit of a security meetup, uh, happened to meet him. I had, I'd been seeing Square from a distance. At this time, it was still really small, primarily used for transactions on Craigslist. Um, and so I looked at it and was like, hey, that looks like a, a pretty difficult set of technical problems uh, that you're, you're solving there. Uh, and Sam said, uh, yes, it is. Actually, would you, would you be interested in joining? Uh, and so I, I got to... Um, be one of the early employees at Square. It was really uh, kind of a, a fun ride getting to be there at the early days. Uh, at that time, there was not even a, an encrypted card reader. Um, the security team was really truly in its infancy. Uh, I, was the, I was the first person Sam brought in. Uh, and so got to see it grow from um, just 40 folks up to uh, 1,200 by the time I left. Got to focus on a bunch of different uh, stuff at Square uh, from uh, encrypted card reader, that, that first device that we ended up uh, manufacturing in China um, with uh, with my friend Diogo, who I ended up uh, starting company with later on. Uh, we worked on the uh, initial factory build out of the uh, of the encrypted card reader at Square and so got to 
kind of go to China, set up the factory assembly lines, uh, and do cryptographic key management in truly an adversarial environment. Uh, that was a really, really fun project. And from there, got to work on a, a bunch of other stuff. Uh, one of the interesting ones was that I um, uh, got to work on uh, acceptance of pins on mobile phones. Uh, and so this is a, this is a project that uh, Square kind of really led the way on in the industry, uh, which was to be able to accept pins on on mobile devices. Uh, it was but a whole security build out plus a um, regulatory build out, um, and that has actually recently been uh, passed as kind of a PCI standard. Uh, the the work that I got to help kind of initiate there and, and work on in the early days uh, has now been delivered. So that was really really big win for the. Um, for Square at large, but also the Square security team. And so I was really, really proud to get to be a part of that project. And here, obviously, you have the opportunity to see um, a real rocket ship, right? I mean, here you join where there are like about 50 employees. And obviously now the, the growth is is unbelievable. The company has experience. So so I guess, you know, like obviously you experience that from from an engineer perspective, but I guess from a from a businessman perspective, because now, you know, you're, you're running your own business, you know, and you are able to, to capture some of those learnings that, that you saw there. So I guess, I guess, what, what was it like to be part of, of a rocket ship like that? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. So there's some, some things that are pretty obvious and kind of uh, everyone under, kind of understands. And then there's um, aspects of it that are kind of surprising to many people. Um, the first one I would say is just like being in a company that goes from, uh, say 40 folks, 40, 50 folks to 1200 over the span of four years, uh, that growth rate is just astronomical. Um, and just as, uh, children, when they're growing up, uh, experience growing pains, uh, organizations like Square have to go through pretty significant growing pains as well. Uh, when you're, uh, hiring more people, building up the communication systems, um, that allow the, the company to operate and function, uh, that's, that's really pretty interesting. And, you know, uh, some of those, uh, some of those growing pains that we went through at Square were, were pretty painful. Uh, some of them just happened kind of uh, transparently and, and very easily. One of the things I would say there is that the, the leadership team at Square, um, Jack especially, and then um, uh, kind of Keith from the operational business side, Keith Raboy, uh, and then much of the um, engineering leadership uh, did a very good job with tra transparency. Uh, internal transparency about everything that was going on, about all the projects that were going on, that really allowed us to um, share information widely and have everyone truly understand the nature of the business. Uh, when everyone understands the nature of the business, uh, it makes decision-making very easy because uh, what you need to work on and what you need to focus on are uh, directly well understood and there's kind of this shared consciousness that everyone has about here's what's important, here's what matters. Um, and so that's, that's something that I, I think, uh, I, I try to emulate at Anchorage, just kind of having that, that notion of internal transparency, uh, kind of across the board. Uh, the other one that was en ended up being very, very helpful at Square, especially when you're, when you're scaling to, um, so many people in a short amount of time, uh, is just this idea that I ideas are what matter, uh, and that execution is what matters, uh, not kind of, um, status or position within the organization uh the square did a very good job of kind of having a uh even if, even in cases where there were hierarchies um hierarchies weren't the way that decisions were made decisions were made uh by the people that were closest to the decision uh and kind of that uh, 
almost in, in some ways decentralized notion of uh, trusting each other to kind of make good decisions. So a security team was making decisions on their own. Uh, other kind of like product teams were doing a very good job there. Uh, just kind of a um, overall method of operating uh, that I found very, very helpful and inspiring. And typically for a company that is growing so fast, I mean, what were some of the pain points? Because, you know, I guess with that level of transparency, you were probably exposed to some of those. So so what were some of those pains? Sure. So I think some of the pains were in um, bringing in uh, a set of uh, really uh, capable and experienced managers. Um, we did uh, we did uh, a number of reorgs over the the few years that I were there was there. Uh, interestingly enough, uh, security the, the security team ourselves we didn't have that many reorgs. Uh, but across the org, um, just as the organization scales, you kind of naturally end up needing to do uh, reorganizations such that you are um, continuing to um, focus on the right things uh, and to uh, make sure that the, the team is really set up for success. Uh, Square was really design focused. Uh, and that that design focus um, was really, I think, one of the antidotes that helped it not kind of shift the org chart. Um, that's kind of one of the one of the troubles that a lot of organizations fall into is shipping the org chart. Uh, but the the design focus really allowed that to not uh, not happen. Um, and so I think that was that was one of the things that was that was really good um, and I'll made sure that some of the um, kind of internal complexities that Square faced uh, didn't uh, manifest into the the product itself. And 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 Dio, obviously. I mean, you you met uh, you know one of the most critical persons in your in your professional career. So uh, so what happened? How did you guys connect so well? Sure. So I mean, we we basically joined the the Square security team that same week, uh, and so from the from the very beginning, we. Uh, work together on all of the all of the projects that we did at Square. Uh, so that was just kind of a um, almost like getting to friendship forged and fired, if you will, uh, because there were there's so many high stakes projects that we needed to work on over the course of many years. There, um, everything from that encrypted card reader that I told you about, all the way up to when uh, Square brought on Starbucks as a client, and we all kind of like were uh, were heads down working um, seven days a week for. Um, months uh, to make that happen, um, and we just kind of kind of bonded uh, in a in a real way. We kind of developed this uh, professional respect uh, that we were able to, you know, deeply trust each other, deeply trust each other's instincts, um, while also um, making sure that we kind of were were there to improve each other uh, and to say, hey, look, uh, push each other harder and just uh, grow and expand as much as we could. Uh, and so that. Um, that relationship that we developed at Square uh, was something that uh, has, uh, frankly, carried us through the, the rest of our careers that we've decided to kind of um, uh, join wagons uh, and, and stay, stay closely aligned. Uh, yeah, I mean, obviously, Diogo, you know, ended up becoming your, your co-founder as well. But I think that you mentioned a word that is, that is super important here, and, and it's trust. Mm-hmm. So what do you think were the uh, building blocks, you know, that really, you know, created that that incredible amount of trust between the two of you yeah i mean i think in in many ways counterintuitively some of the some of the trust uh really came to fruition uh by virtue of being involved in stressful projects um and so uh, a stressful project where you're kind of uh, under a, a decent amount of pressure uh in order to deliver um you work work very well with people when other people are kind of like aligned on uh, what needs to be done, aligned on how to 
how to work together well. Uh, and so particularly those stressful projects uh, where you come to rely on somebody and really need to um, need to, to trust that they're going to deliver their part of it um, leads to a, a relationship of trust because you can, you can see, Hey, look, this, um, this relationship has been tested. This relationship has been tested at the limits. Uh, and we have found that we, we work together well, kind of in the steady state and we work together well when, when things are difficult and um, maybe tiring, we're, we're stressed. We don't really know what's going on. Uh, and then the other part of there yeah. is that um, we are, very, very good at um, doing all we can to remove um, ego from our decision-making process. Um, it's not to say that um, ego isn't entirely removed from kind of what we care about, but it's particularly removed when it comes to how do we decide on what to do next. Um, we take a very um, uh, kind of like logical and structured approach to how we make decisions. Uh, and that that mode of operating is particularly important in security where uh Security can't be uh, defined by um, someone's preferences or uh, just how they want it to be built. It really needs to be uh, defined by kind of an adversarial model. Uh, and so the fact that we're able to kind of uh, debate with each other about what is the relative value or downside of this particular business model, uh, this particular business decision, um, we tested that through both technical projects and then increasingly through business projects um, where we're really able to, you know, argue both sides of any position uh, and that really helps us uh, helps us now when it comes time to make difficult decisions uh, we can kind of remove our own um, I identity from it uh, and do everything we can to debate about that uh, and that that I think has yielded dividends here in our here in our current company uh, because the the quality of decisions right. we're able to make is so much higher uh, because we are able to remove ourselves from it it's like, no, it's not who is right or who is wrong. It's exactly. like what's right, right, exactly. for, for the business. I totally, totally, totally get that. And and you guys, the two of you decided to make the move to Docker. So so why? That's right, yeah. So after about four years at Square, uh, we had uh, pretty early on at Square, we had decided, hey, we work together really well. Wouldn't it be nice if we would uh, have the opportunity to start a company together? Uh, one of the one of the nice things about getting to work at Square was that our our work impacted a lot of people. In that, all of the Square merchants, all the Square users, got the advantage of our technology. Um, but we had developed such a good working relationship and had um, security expertise, security opinions that we thought could uh, more generalize and generalize to a broader swath of the market. And so the initial thesis was uh, find some way that we can have a, a larger impact uh, in terms of. Um, taking our security opinions and allowing more people to benefit from that. Um, as we looked at potentially starting a company, we came across this uh, company that was exploding in popularity called Docker. Um, and after taking kind of a hard look at it, we just realized, hey, it actually makes more sense. Um, rather than starting our own company, why don't we just, uh, the two of us, kind of jointly apply uh, to Docker um, and kind of go to a almost like a, a pre-product uh, talent acquisition, uh, join together, uh, find a way to... Um, join up and really build out the security team uh, within Docker. And so um, we approached Docker together and kind of said, hey, look, we, we would love to come in together and um, 
really kind of uh, changed the face of security at Docker as much as can. There's already kind of a, a great start here, but there's a lot more stuff that could be built, and we would love to have the opportunity to do that. Uh, and the folks at Docker obliged, uh, and so we we joined up and got to spend um, the next three years kind of uh, building up the security infrastructure at Docker. Um, that was a, a it was a great time for us because the the great news about Docker was that it was um, like I mentioned earlier, exploding in popularity. Um, many, many uh, engineers wanted to use it, and I think it's still kind of a growing in its popularity. And so what we got to do is kind of take our uh, notions about how security should be done, uh, secure by default, um, make things safe, not secure, all these kinds of ideas we were able to um, embed as much as possible into the Docker runtime uh, and to really um, build the team there and the community at large because Docker is an open source project. Um, many of the contributions on security didn't necessarily come directly from us, uh, but from the, the wider community there. But we were able to kind of uh, set the tone where it was important. Um, and now Docker runs on... Uh, a huge number of the workloads on um, AWS, Azure, and GCP. Uh, and so that that optimization function that I was talking about earlier, which is like, hey, well, how do we optimize for uh, maximum impact within the industry? Uh, we're really, really able to do that within Docker. So what was the biggest takeaway from, from your experience and from these couple of years at Docker? Sure. So there were there were a number of number of things we wanted to get out of Docker. The first one was, um, you know, take the take our security opinions and get them kind of broadly deployed into the ecosystem, um, and that was that was uh, successful um, by virtue of the fact that you know Docker was getting so popular. We were able to kind of do that naturally. Um, the other thing we looked at was how do we use this opportunity at Docker? So it's a uh, Square had been kind of a a consumer or business to consumer kind of sales motion, uh, Docker was going to more clearly be an enterprise sales motion. Uh, so we looked at uh, our time at Docker as an opportunity to kind of um, grow some skills that we didn't already necessarily have. So skills around go-to-market, skills around marketing, uh, because security ended up being so important to the sales motion and to the marketing motion at Docker, uh, we were able to kind of embed ourselves into those teams. Uh, and just have it be a, a, a great education in how to do that. Um, and so we're both very, very grateful for the, the sales team at Docker and for the marketing team over there, uh, kind of allowing us to, to come in uh, and teaching us a lot about uh, the right way, to, right way to do a bunch of this stuff. Um, and so that was uh, that was really kind of nice uh, preparation for being able to start a company, uh, because one of the one of the things that can happen with technical founders is that uh, they know a lot about the tech, but they don't know about uh, enough about kind of other aspects of the business. Um, Docker really provided us um, an education in being able to uh, do some of those things, understanding how you do uh, organizational mapping from a sales perspective, uh, understanding how to make a, a differentiated market um, marketing message. Uh, all of that was um, very, very helpful for us long term, uh, and was uh, uh, really, really a, a nice way to get some exposure to areas that we didn't necessarily already have experience with. And this was the the immediate step to to you really and Diogo, you know, going out and and starting your own business, Anchorage. So, so can you tell us about you know that moment where you guys you know were like, wow, you know, I think there's there's something here, and to the moment where. You're like, okay, you know, it's time to give our notice and, and really, you know, have this life, you know, this idea take a life of its own and, and really go at it and take the leap of faith. So, so walk us through, through that. Sure. So one of, the, one of the big advantages of getting to work on Docker, it was, a, it was an open source project. 
Um, and open source projects, if you if you get to be kind of a, a core contributor to an open source project, uh, you get some measure of kind of notoriety within the marketplace. Uh, people kind of know that you are the uh, the folks working on the security for an important important project. Uh, and so, based on the um, strength of the reputation there, um, we were able to. Um, kind of start uh, consulting with some fledgling crypto hedge funds um, and to, to make sure everyone's got the timeline right. This was kind of late 2017, uh, where uh, a number of crypto hedge funds were getting started because of kind of the um, the mania that was going on around crypto in terms of uh, Bitcoin price going through the roof, a lot of other uh, like altcoins coming into existence. A lot of people were looking to start crypto funds, um, but these were not necessarily technical folks. Uh, these were folks that were investors, but they didn't uh, necessarily know how to uh, properly manage keys. Um, and so it's this very interesting situation where all of a sudden a bunch of people uh, desperately need really good key management. Uh, and it turns out that Diogo and I have been working together on security and key management uh, for the last eight years. Uh, so it's just this, uh, this is a very natural um almost founder market fit where exactly the thing we're good at uh, is now needed in the marketplace. Uh, and so um, kind of ended up in relationships with a number of funds that were looking to do uh, kind of a consulting agreements with us, kind of like, you know, ask, Hey, can you just kind of give me, give me advice on how to do this properly? Enough of those started happening where we said, Hey, I think this is a uh, general purpose solution that could get built here. Uh, we could actually like really build a build a technology stack uh, that could allow them to uh, safely hold their keys and um, took a look at the marketplace. And uh, whenever you're starting a business, you kind of need to look at what what competitors are out there. What are the other kind of alternative solutions? Uh, and what we found was that it it really appeared that the institutional custody market uh, was deeply underserved. Um, what was what was kind of passing for competence at the time was this notion called cold storage, uh, and cold storage is this this pretty simple idea where you keep an you keep a cryptographic key secure, you keep a piece of data secure by turning off a computer. You just uh, keep the computer turned off, uh, and that's a, kind of entirely your process. Uh, what we saw with crypto assets was uh, institutional investors are going to want to do a couple of things. Number one, they're going to be able to one trade quickly, uh, and so a custodian that's holding keys just like kind of uh, on computers that are turned off is inherently going to have latency in order to their, their ability to trade. They're going to be want to they're going to want to be able to trade more quickly than that. Additionally, uh, as the crypto asset class is evolving and growing, um, there is increasingly need for um, assets to be live to be able to participate in networks. Uh, so think of this as uh, in traditional asset classes, uh, you have like things like. Um, stock dividends or like dividend payments or coupon payments from bonds, other kinds of um, other kinds of ways that you can generate yield on top of your assets. Uh, within crypto assets, uh, there's this notion of staking, um, uh, staking or voting in the networks, all of which in order to do it, you need to be able to actually use the keys. Um, and so it looked to us like this market is systematically underserved. Everybody is doing cold storage. There isn't a truly institutional player that needs to exist. Uh, and so everything comes together. We're like, wow, this is exactly what we're good at. Uh, this is exactly how we can um, build up this company. Uh, why, don't we, uh, why don't we do this? Why don't we go ahead and raise, raise money? 
So in late 2017, we end up raising money from Andreessen Horowitz and Coastal Adventures. Uh, they kind of uh, they kind of led our round, and then we brought in about 40 or 50 angel investors who would be able to help us um, with um, connections uh, and uh, bringing in various skill sets that we didn't already have, like uh, regulatory compliance, those kinds of things. Brought in a bunch of angel investors and um, kind of got started. And so based on all that, we're like, okay, um, there's this market dynamic exists. It looks like we're, we're going to be able to raise money. Uh, and so to your question earlier, it was, it was kind of like, okay, now this is, this is our time. We work together so well, we can, we have the opportunity to start this company. Uh, the market really needs a differentiated new solution. We've got an opportunity to do this. And so we, we let Docker know that we were going to be going off on our own. Uh, and then we, um, took the plunge, if you will. Well, I guess that the most critical decision when, when you're starting a business is, is choosing wisely your, your co-founder. And here you obviously had, um, had a clear advantage, you know, like sometimes people need to take the plunge on, on maybe like going, you know, at it with someone that they know for maybe like a couple of weeks or, or maybe months. In this case, you had the opportunity of choosing someone that you had been working, you know, as you were saying, you know, in, in super stressful uh, projects and, and where you guys really trusted each other. So, I mean, really amazing the fact that you had this, this long-term partnership, you know, and, and, and working out well too, no? Yeah. Yeah. It was, uh, it was, it was really special that we kind of had that and the, uh, the ability to kind of, even during that, the fundraising process to bounce each ideas off each other, uh, be kind of in, in absolute sync on what we're hearing from investors, uh, how we can, how we can build this up. Uh, and then also just, uh, kind of the, the, I don't know, just the excitement of getting to know that, Hey, you're going to, you're going to get to start a business with someone that you've been working together for so long. Um, you've like built this rapport and this relationship. Uh, there's just kind of an, an inherent excitement that comes from, uh, being able to say, Hey, we're going to, we're going to, you know, kind of cast out on a journey together. Um, so it was just a, an incredibly exciting time and I'm, I'm really fortunate to have that relationship. Now, I'm, I'm actually, you know, quite uh, impressed and I'm sure that the listeners, you know, are, are also, you know, like kind of like impressed with the fact that that you had already those relationships before you even, you know, went at it, you know, with MVPs or or any anything like that. So so how did you know all these investors? Because, I mean, you guys were like really on the engineering side, not not so much, you know, on the business side. So so how do you have access to all these, you know, top tier, like tier one, you know, VCs in the Valley? Sure. So. Um, it, it kind of goes back to that uh, transition out of Square. Uh, so at the at the tr- transition point out of Square, um, we consulted with a number of kind of top tier uh, venture capitalists who had been uh, maybe uh, investors in Square or were looking to be investors in Docker. Um, and um, many people may not remember, but at the time, uh, the kind of the security perception problem that Docker had was one of its most pronounced issues. Uh, and so as part of the, as part of the move from Square into Docker, we ended up getting to meet a number of uh, Docker's investors, a number of Square's investors. Uh, and kind of as we were, as we were going along uh, at Docker, uh, did all we could to kind of remain maintain close relationships with a number of the venture capitalists who were investors in Docker, uh, just because they were they were kind of interested in and in how we were doing, interested in what we what we're up to, um, and um, that the kind of the the strength of those relationships, which is was what allowed us to um, uh, 
really do that that first fundraise. Uh, the other thing that was a, a pretty big advantage here was that the the product that we were looking to launch, the product that we were looking to build, was a purpose built product for institutional investors. And so any any conversation we were going into was both in some ways a hey it's a pitch on hey invest in our company, but implicitly the venture capitalists that would invest in us knew that we would have product market fit because they themselves needed the technology. They were looking to make crypto investments. They didn't want to have to go get a safety deposit box or have their accounting team need to take control of crypto assets. Um, so there's kind of a, a built-in understanding that what we were building would be directly useful for the VCs that we were pitching. Yeah, because, I mean, typically fundraising, I mean, the way that I see it is as, 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 a, sales, as a sales process, you know, as well. Mm-hmm. But in this case, it, it was an actual sales process because yes. you guys, you know, not only you were probably getting their funding, but then also potential customers. That's right. That's right. And that, that continues to this day um, in that um, in, in many cases, um, any, any particular investor that we're talking to, uh, it's kind of very easy to maintain relationships with them uh, because they are they are looking for a custodian. They're looking for a, a counterparty to help them uh, hold their keys, do that securely, and do it in a trusted way. So how, how do you guys make money, Nathan? Sure. So we, uh, like I've mentioned, we serve institutional investors, uh, VC funds, private equity funds, family offices, anybody who's looking to hold uh, very significant positions in crypto assets, we'll take them on. Uh, and right now we charge um, BIPs on assets under custody. And so we, we take in uh, assets, hold them for you, hold them securely, allow you to um, stake the assets, allow you to vote in um, asset decisions. Uh, and then in return for that service, um, institutional investors pay us a, a small percentage annually uh, based on how much they're holding with us. Got it, got it. And you guys say you raised first $17 million, and then you raised $40 million. Uh, and basically, the um, you know, one thing that I thought it was really amazing is that you didn't even go through a prototype phase. You know, typically people do the MVPs, then they validate, then they get the investors, you know, excited. In this case, you guys just went straight at it. That's right. Um, right straight out of uh, leaving Docker, we raised 17 million uh, from Andreessen Horowitz and Kosla. Uh, a, a big part of the reason for that was it's kind of twofold. Um, this is a product category where a minimum viable product is totally useless. A minimum viable product that is supposed to hold 100 million in crypto is an absolutely irresponsible decision to make. Um, so there was there was no universe where we were going to build kind of a, a fledgling thing uh, and then try to get institutional investors to put in hundreds of millions of dollars into it. Uh, so we always kind of knew we were going to go from nothing to uh, institutional impressive system right out of the gate. Uh, the other side of our business, in addition to uh, all of the technical sophistication that we have, uh, is the fact that we need to be a regulated entity. Uh, and so regulated entities uh, allow us to act as what's called a qualified custodian. I won't go too much into kind of the, the legal mumbo jumbo here, uh, but suffice it to say that we needed to uh, go to a federal or state regulator, spend a bunch of time with them and actually create a uh, regulated entity that was able to um, hold the assets. And so it was not just technology, uh, but also kind of regulatory approval. And one of the things that regulators like to see uh, is that balance sheet. That balance sheet, so that they know that hey, you can you can sustain operations, uh, you can really operate this. Uh, 
And so uh, the pitch to VCs was, hey, we need to create a regulated entity and we need to immediately hire a team uh, that can go build out this technology. Uh, and so this is not a case where we need kind of a small fundraising round. Uh, rather, in order to even prove out this model, we need a, a pretty substantial substantial round to even get going, get us started. Interesting. So then, so then why did you guys decide that the first hire that you needed to make, you know, typically, you know, in a company like this, you're thinking about maybe a legal counsel, maybe a folks that, you know, are, are deeply rooted in operations here. You guys just went at it and, and, and got a recruiter on board as the first hire. What was that? Yeah, that's right. So this is one of our, um, one of our contrarian opinions that I swear by at this point. Uh, so we had a very, very clear vision of exactly what needed to get built from a, a technical perspective. Um, and we knew that that was going to take a team of, say, 10, 12 engineers, um, plus a support staff in uh, kind of... Uh, uh, legal, compliance, marketing, uh, sales, all of these were going to be kind of like directly strategic hires that we needed to build up. Uh, and so it was, it was very clear that the, the first most important thing was going to be team building. Uh, and so from the, from the very get-go, our first hire uh, was this individual named Danny. Uh, and uh, Danny was a, a recruiter that we'd worked with at Docker, and we decided to bring him in uh, as our first hire to really help us build up the team uh, because we knew we, there's no way we're going to build up the product that we needed uh, unless we had a, a really capable um, recruiter straight out of the gate. Um, and so Danny came in as employee number one, uh, helped out with all of our recruiting and team building, has helped us go from um, just the, the me and Diogo and, and him uh, from there all the way up to we're now at, at 50 people two years later. Uh, and he's been kind of instrumental in that. Uh, the other advantage of having somebody like that from a very early time is uh, setup of all of the kind of um, uh, kind of like threshold issue things that you need to start a company: um, payroll, benefits, office, operations. All that kind of stuff uh, was able to be handled by uh, by Danny. Uh, and so that's that's something that I now regularly recommend to other founders who are kind of getting off the ground: is uh, employee number one. Have them kind of be a uh, jack of all trades who can specifically focus on recruiting, uh, but can help out in a number of other areas as well. Uh, and is that that has been just a, a force multiplier uh, in in terms of our ability to um, execute on this business. And where do you think that crypto? Because with crypto, I mean, it, there's a lot of noise. There's a lot of bad actors. There is obviously a, a SEC catching up. You know all the. Uh, ICOs, you know, uh, subpoenas left and right. Where do you think that the the crypto space is going as a whole? Sure. So it's a it's a great question. So um, one of our uh, kind of early early understandings was that um, regulatory clarity and regulatory compliance for this company was going to be mission critical from the very beginning. Um, and so um, many many kind of startup companies uh, do all they can to kind of avoid going after. Um, clear regulatory guidance, um, do what they can to maybe um, skirt around regulations or something like that. Our, our goal from the very beginning was we are going to be the institutional player. We are going to be the well-behaved regulated player in this space. Um, and so that kind of early strategic decision led to a lot of uh, other things within the company where we decided, hey, we're going to um, build out an entire uh, legal and compliance team here that is going to be super enabled uh, to not only um, really 
help us strategically run the company, uh, but also would be kind of an advocacy force um, and it really help us develop really good relationships with state regulators, federal, federal regulators, et cetera. Uh, and so the way we kind of looked at it was we're going to need to have what amounts to a small law firm inside the company uh, in order to deal with all the um, legal and regulatory um, strategic questions that we need to get answered, uh, whether that is understanding how to launch this business line or whether that is kind of actively advocating uh, with the SEC. Uh, we kind of knew that this was always going to be a, a super strategic area for us. Um, and so I have now gone to the SEC dozens of times um, to kind of uh, explain cryptocurrency to them, understand the the deep, deep rules around crypto custody and how all of that can all of that can map into regulations that were written in the 1930s and 1940s. And, and frankly, it is a it is a, a, a lot of difficult questions that need to get answered. Uh, and so I'm not I'm not surprised that it's kind of taking a while to get all this stuff figured out. It is it is really quite complex. Um, and the the role that the SEC plays within the, kind of uh, the U.S. on um, keeping investors protected uh, and facilitating capital formation, uh, they do not take it lightly, and they do a, they do a very good job of being uh, informed and understanding what's going on. Uh, and so we continue to uh, engage there and and stay. Um, stay integrated with how they're thinking um, because we, we think it is uh, super important for us. Now, it's a, quite an interesting, you know, journey, the one that you guys are in because, you know, you have two, two challenges. I mean, one is a challenge of, of building a business from nothing, right, which is uh, unbelievable. And then the other challenge is, is, you know, so you're dealing with that uncertainty. And then the, the second uncertainty is the fact that you know, you have the the regulatory hurdles as well, and and you know, it's a it's just too too much uncertainty at, at sometimes, no. So you can you can look at the kind of the uncertainty as a, kind of a, a blocker, or you can look at kind of as a um, a brick wall uh, that only few will actually actually get through. Um, and so, um, in many ways, starting a difficult business. Uh, ends up being really good uh, because it means that not many other people are going to try to do it. Um, yeah. That the fact that you have a uh, technically sophisticated asset class uh, that create that takes an incredible amount of engineering discipline to hold accurately and securely and correctly, and you have this whole set of legal and regulatory questions that you need to get answered, uh, means that it's truly not for the faint of heart. Uh, but what kind of motivates us each day is that we really believe that um, crypto assets, uh, cryptocurrencies, blockchains uh, have kind of an enduring place in this world, uh, and we want to help help enable it. Uh, there are there are many businesses out there that kind of um, ad- address a specific need in the market uh, that is kind of relatively straightforward to address. Uh, we've always thought like, hey, how do we how do we kind of seek out the nearly impossible problem? Uh, the ones where there isn't a clear black or white answer, it's all um, shades of gray, and you really have to uh, thoughtfully think about how to how to address it. Um, Adiogo and I have always kind of uh, strived in those areas where um, there's not there's not clarity, there's not certainty, uh, but at the end of the day, you know that um, on a, a long enough time horizon, uh, what is happening here is really really promising and really really powerful, um, and it's just kind of a, a pleasure to get to be a part of that. Yeah, no, absolutely. And and obviously now, you know, there's a lot of people that are saying that we are coming out of one of the longest bull runs uh, on the market, you know, in, in history. And I'm just wondering, like, what, what do you think is going to be, you know, how do you think crypto assets are going to react when, when there's, let's say, like a market turnaround? 
Sure. So um, I think at, at kind of at the first level, I think the way I would answer that is that if I if I had kind of a, a specific crystal ball around, uh, hey, crypto assets are going to go up, crypto assets are going to go down, uh, then I probably would have chosen to be a crypto fund uh, manager. Um, <laughs> I, I, I myself do not uh, have uh, particular opinions on which way the market is going to go. Yeah. Um, however, uh, right. I think that uh, crypto assets as a, an asset class that's going to have enduring value uh, is something that is, uh, I'm, I'm highly convicted on. Uh, and therefore, it makes a lot of sense to start a company like Anchorage uh, because Anchorage um, stands to benefit from all of the crypto assets doing well. Uh, so it's, it's not as if uh, I, as the, as the co-founder of Anchorage, need any particular asset to do well. All, uh, all we kind of need to win as a business is that the entire, entire market does well. Um, and we have two roles to play in that. One, one role is to kind of like uh, take a good hard look at what's going on right now and do a good job of um, securing existing assets and doing that. Uh, on, the, on the other side, there is a real sense that uh, we need good actors within crypto. And the more good actors we have in crypto, the more there is a chance that this whole space will evolve and grow and expand. Uh, and so we, we uh, do not take it at all lightly uh, that we have a kind of a, a responsibility to kind of carry crypto forward in really meaningful ways. Makes sense. Makes sense. And one of the questions that I typically ask the, the guests that come on the show is knowing what you know now, Nathan, if you could go back in time and have a conversation with, with that younger self, let's say with that Nathan that was about to take the leap of faith. What would be that that piece of advice that you would give to your younger self before launching a business, and and why? Knowing what you know now, hmm, it's a it's a great question. I think the the first thing that I would say is um, think about hiring um, senior leaders even earlier than you expect. Um, there was a a little bit of a um, a tentativeness to bring in uh, truly senior folks early on in the company. Uh, and we have, we have now corrected that and, and hired some really, really great, uh, great leaders within the company. Um, I think what I would have said um, to that, that younger person is, hey, do that even earlier um, because the, um, the ability to scale up the organization uh, is even more than you can imagine when you have really, really great folks on the team. Uh, and particularly in cryptocurrency where you really need kind of a top-notch people in every position. Uh, whether that's top-notch people in legal, top-notch people in compliance, top-notch people in sales, uh, finance, everyone is kind of simultaneously running the company, but also advocating for the company. Uh, and so you really need kind of a, a rock star, truly great leadership team. Uh, and I would have, I would, I would do that much earlier in the process than we did. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's very profound, Nathan, because at the end of the day, time is all we got. Indeed. So, you know, having people that help to reduce the steep learning curve is, uh, it's, it's definitely, you know, something that I, that I think is, it's critical. So Nathan, for the folks that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Sure. So I'm available on Twitter, uh, at Nathan McCauley. Um, but even better, if you'd like to get in, get in touch and hear more about Anchorage, uh, please feel free to go to anchorage.com. Um, you can learn more there and you can um, uh, express interest through our forum on the website. Fantastic, Nathan. Well, thank you for being on the Dealmaker Show today. Uh, thanks. Thanks so much for having me. Really appreciate it. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. 
If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.